Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil and find out. Hey everyone, it is the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco and we are all about the number seven on this episode. It is our Power of Seven special, our Powering Seven specialist, Will Dale is with me. Will, g'day. Hello. Uh, This is different for us. We normally do focus pieces on cars, categories, but for the theme of a number, this is lit up on social media. We put the call out a while ago to when you say the number seven, what do you think of in motorsport and the list it's long and it's varied. There's a bit of everything from four wheels and two wheels, television, race cars, drivers, teams, achievements, a bit of everything. It's wild. You think of, it's such, like, it's such a, um, it's a number you don't really think too much about, but it's so prevalent in motorsport throughout the world. For a number that, when you figure, like, number one, okay, you would expect that to be around a lot and have a lot of different links, but seven. There's so many on this list. I, yeah. I couldn't actually, I had to colour a few to be able to fit them. <laughs> To fit them all on. Of course, the reason we're doing it is it is as a celebration of the power of seven, of course, with Petronas uh, being seven-time Formula One World Champions with the Mercedes-AMG Formula One team. They've won every Drivers' and Constructors' World Championship since 2014. In the hybrid era, they have been the dominant force in Formula One with, of course, Lewis Hamilton being at the the head of the queue and uh, Nico Rosberg sneaking in there for one when <laughs> Lewis didn't win. Uh, he got his one world championship at Nico and decided to retire and run away and uh, uh, and not be defeated. He's, he's undefeated as a world champion because yeah. he's a, a retired world champion. So let's jump in. Obviously, the power of seven, the whole thing that really started this for us with our partners, Petronas, was taking a look at what they're currently doing. I mean, Lewis Hamilton, seven world championships in... In the scope of Formula One, it's he and Schumacher that are at seven, but mm. there's only Lewis who can go beyond seven, and there's a fair chance he's going to be able to do that. But is there a streak like that that's – I mean, there are streaks like that in other categories, but are they as impressive? When you look at – yeah, the obvious argument is that, okay, Lewis had has had the best car for the bulk of those championships, but – you could say the exact same Schumacher. He had the best car for all of his championships as well. A key difference there, though, is that Lewis has always had a teammate that's been a been a been an opponent, not someone who's been subservient like Schumacher had throughout a lot of his years. Who's actually pushed him hard, has had to actually beat him rather than using him as, essentially as a foil. Mm, true, but he's had his measure. Hamilton's had mm. Bottas's measure the whole way through. There's been the odd day where it goes the other way, but. Not enough for yeah. to swing the pendulum far enough the other way. But, I mean, seven world championships, even if, yep, you've got the best car, you've done the best job. Last time I checked, that's the aim of the game. <laughs> yeah. No one goes, right, motor racing's all about taking a mid-range car and winning. No, it's about building the best, yeah. fastest, most aerodynamic, most powerful, best track, all of the things. And it's funny how the best, dri- the best drivers generally find their way into the best cars. It's a Coincidence, theme. Eh? Yeah, yeah, it's a theme. Yeah. It's a theme. Uh, of course, Michael Schumacher and, and William Grounds was one of the people who um, suggested that the Schumacher seven-time world champion, of course, uh, a couple of times with Benetton and then the rest of them with Ferrari in that dominant streak in the in the 2000s. I think that Schumacher's seven to me, and it's probably rose-coloured glasses because of the period, but his seven came in a longer period 
but spread across different eras and different teams. Although Hamilton did win one for McLaren too as well along mm. the journey. But um, Schumacher won with Benetton. He won the three-and-a-half-litre era. He won the three-litre era. Then he won in the Ferrari era, which was kind of his own era really. <laughs> uh, so it's an amazing achievement. And, and it's funny when you look at the list of sevens. Everyone's got a different thing of the sport that interests them, whether mm. it's motorbike racing, NASCAR racing, Formula One, rallying, touring cars, supercars. So that's why this list is so varied. So it was such an interesting topic for us to look at the power of seven and clearly by the reaction from the fans, it's a very powerful number because it invokes a lot of different things. So we've covered off from a Formula One perspective. If you're thinking locally, seven, what are you thinking of in terms of achievements of seven? See, this is the thing. I was actually just thinking this as you were asking. So when you think of the numbers, when you, you Aaron Noonan, think of the number seven in relation to motorsport, what, what's your first thing that you go to? Channel seven. Very good. It's the first thing. Yeah. I, and, and we've got so many people who've suggested that here on my on my list. Benny Grice, son of Alan, uh, <laughs> Dean Robinson, Sean Power, uh, listeners and followers of our Facebook page who've suggested it. It's the obvious thing to me because it's so prevalent. I mean, it's currently back on the scene in motorsport hmm. with obviously supercars, but TCR and uh, all of the things that it's doing with rallying. Uh, the history there of the 70s, 80s, 90s and the red jackets and race cam and all of the, <laughs> the races because I grew up with it. So to me, you say seven, and that's worldwide too, seven's reputation for motorsport coverage, particularly in the late 70s, 80s, 90s, world class. Hmm. Um, you, you go to the States, you go to Europe, they were all across what Mike Raymond and Wilco and everybody in seven land was doing. So for me, it's Channel 7, seven sport, um, and it's not just the coverage, it's all of the technical advancements, the the state of play at the time, and the red jackets. The it's red got, jackets. It's, it's, you just can't talk about Channel 7 without being mentioned. I still can probably recite mostly off the top of my head. You know when Doug Mulray did that um, AMSCAR meeting in commentary, and he, it was 88, so it was the end of the red jackets. They had. The, they were into the blue jackets by yeah, that yeah. stage. Yeah, and he was, compl- he was saying, look at this, I asked for the red jacket. I wanted one to go with my eyes. <laughs> Yeah, they actually changed those jackets because I th- oh, there was a story, Crompton told me about this once, that um, the red jackets looked too similar to, oh, I can't remember if it was a, uh, officials at a certain event somewhere along the line that they were covering. Oh, okay. So they ended up blue in 88, the, a, a navy blue sort of style, which I think some of those might exist, but the red ones most certainly don't. But um, And they don't look red in person from what I understand. They're like a crimsony sort of a colour and they really bled on mm. television back in those days. So if you took modern cameras, HD coverage, all that sort of <laughs> stuff, with that on-air kit from 1986 or whatever, oh, blow your eyeballs out now. It'd be the, <laughs> yeah. the de- Sometimes too much detail is not a good thing no. in, in the way things are. But when you think of seven in supercars, what are you thinking of? Well, this is it. When I think of seven in motorsport in general, the first thing I think of is Neil Crompton. Yeah. And yeah. that's just a function of the era that I grew up in. Like that Amscar meeting that... Mulray was commentating at. Is this the BMW one this is that the BMW he was? One, is yeah. this the one he drove? Uh, he and Richo were having a big fight, or is this the one that Brock joined in on? No, this is the one where it was him and Richo, Trevor Ashby, and um, yeah, he may have um, he may have revved the engine quite hard in that opening race, <laughs> um, in the excitement of being in the cut and thrust. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah. Cromley was suggested by John Bykoff, former DBS racer, Dylan Innes, 
Glenn Fitzgerald. I mean, we're going to name a few people who suggested yeah. some of these things because uh, everyone loves hearing their name here <laughs> as well, to yes. be honest. But, yeah, with, with Cromley, it's Coke Commodore. It's GIO Commodore. Of course, he was the seven number was what he, you know, he ran it with the Brock team on the BMWs. The, the Holden Racing Rolf. team. The Dulux Formula Holden. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a logical number to have because of his association. But do you remember what the first race car that he had with the number seven on it was? Because it was Ooh, none it of those cars. It wasn't Flash, was it? Uh, yeah, it, I think you're starting a, to get there. <laughs> um, it was a um, Mitsubishi Cordia production car, was it not? <laughs> uh, yes, a lesson in torque steer, I believe he describes it as. Uh, Winton 300 production car race, 1985, he and Peter McKay. And Scaife drove one of those on the same uh, weekend in the yeah. same race as well, which a lot of people forget. But, um, yeah, absolutely, Cromley is a guy who, when you think seven, because of his time on Channel 7, but he was car seven for... Whoa, big big chunk of his career. Mm. Brock, HRT, GIO with Bob Forbes, Coke with Wayne Gardner Racing. Till Wayne pinched the number. Yeah, that's right. They swapped the numbers there at one stage and Neil went back to number four. And then I don't think he really got it back because his association with seven kind of ended. Um, he had an association with 10 in 96 mm. onwards, I think it was. He did the, the IndyCar coverage and, of course, that grew later on into a, a pretty prominent role once he retired from full-time V8 supercar racing. So, yes, Cromley is most definitely in our Power of Seven podcast um, oh, themes. Oh, he ran it on Mustang Sally. He did too. Yeah. That's right. So that was 2015 uh, when he drove John Bauer's Mustang at Sydney Motorsport Park because JB was in Toronto at that stage. So mm. uh, that's right. Yeah, another one. Jeez, he's, um, he's got a few there on yeah. the list. Now, when I think supercars, though, currently, it's the GOAT. Oh, it's for Winkle. sure. Seven time supercars champion. I think he's going to end on seven. I don't think he's going to get to eight this year. I can't see it happening. Um, but nevertheless, I can't see anyone getting near seven anytime soon because it's- Scott McLaughlin ain't coming back anytime soon. <laughs> no. It's funny. I was actually thinking yesterday about, about that seventh title. Like, that was an amazing year for supercars in general. Like, the racing was intense from weekend to weekend. There wasn't a dull race. And the way Jamie actually managed to grab that championship away from Scotty right at, right at the death, couldn't write phenomenal. the script. No. Couldn't write the script for and, that Newcastle final. And you, even if you were writing the script, you probably wouldn't have included his backflip into the harbour. I wouldn't have seen that coming. No, yeah. I don't think anyone did. <laughs> that was amazing. Talk about last-minute motors of on-the-spur decisions and moments in motorsport. Uh, launching a backflip off the top of that boat that was um, anchored up out the front of the pit straight there in Newcastle certainly got people's attention. But of Jamie Winkup 7 Supercars Championships... Uh, what's the one that rem- sticks out in your mind most? Is it that one because of the way he won it and because it's the most recent? And because after 2016 where his new teammate, then-new teammate, Shane Van Gisbergen, had come into Red into Triple Eight and beaten him. Mm. Um, mm. To see him hit back like that and turn in a very different kind of performance to the sort of... Um, to the way he'd won his previous championships where he was the fastest guy, he was the dominant guy... To be on the back foot and come through like that, that's the one that sticks in mind for me. He actually should be nine. He could easily be nine. Oh, nine for sure. Because yeah. 2007, he lost it by two points. Mm. And and it's not just because he lost it by such a close margin. And it goes, and every race adds up to the championship. Mm. But that was the year that at Eastern Creek they were excluded, or he was excluded from the last race, which I think was a, a third place or something like that. Um, because they had incorrect rotors on the mm. car, not the control brake rotors that you had to use. They had some other stock that they were going to use up that they were using for the ride day that was going to happen the following day. But 
excluded from the race, those points would have given him the championship. That's why we say motorsport is a team sport. Yeah, and the other one's 2010. Oh, for, yeah, for sure. I mean, he had the fastest car by a mile, but the thing kept having dramas and things went wrong. And, of course, James Courtney ends up winning a championship in uh, a Triple Eight car, but, mm. uh, built by Triple Eight, but um, very much a, a DJR car. Now, in, in terms of America, we had a lot of people suggesting this. Um, Daniel Simpson, Dane Silk, um, three guys stick out oh, in NASCAR sure. racing because they're all seven-time NASCAR Cup Series level champions. And obviously, obvious starting point for that, the king, Richard Petty, the yep. first seven-time champion. Someone who's someone who's such a um, legendary figure, not just within motorsport, but outside of motorsport. You think of the movie Cars. There's an entire character based on him. <laughs> that It's called the king. And also his wife, Linda, is Mrs. the king. Is it's, she Mrs. the king or Mrs. Mrs. king? Oh, because it sounds a bit Lightning weird. Lightning addresses her as Mrs. The King. All oh, right, well, yeah. fair enough. That that counts. That counts. Uh, Jimmy Johnson, of course, and Dale Earnhardt are yes. the seven-time Cup champs. Jimmy Johnson these days is racing on in IndyCar racing in the road course races. Which uh, you know what I, I keep thinking, and a lot of people online are saying, "Why is he doing this? He doesn't have to do this. He's made millions of bucks. He's you know he should be you know what is he forty-four somewhere around that mark." Something I think like it's that. kudos to him. I think it's yeah. amazing that he's taking on that challenge. Yeah, he's running at the back, but his margin's getting better and closer to the the last five cars on the grid every time. Uh, I think, it, and it's a phenomenal advertisement for IndyCar racing, which desperately needs the on-track product's fantastic. The racing's mm. really good. They've got a great mix of drivers, new youth movement coming through with you know Colton Herder and uh, Pato Award and you know McLaughlin and <laughs> yeah. Some black about that bloke. Yeah. Um, yeah. They're all rising through. But when you've got Jimmy Johnson, who's going to hit more broader mainstream attention, mm. that's why he's on the Indy 500 race coverage recently. Yeah. That's why he's serving a, a greater role when he's not in the car. So I think that's, you know, some people say it's ruining a legacy of a career. Nah. Uh, he has earned the right to make the decision of what he wants to do, whether he stops, goes on, drives something else here or there. It doesn't diminish the fact that he's won seven cup championships and, you know, in in the era, everyone can debate which was mm. the more competitive era: the Petty era, Earnhardt's era with Childress, Jimmy Johnson's with Hendricks. Depends what era that you're in, but when no, was it most competitive? Yeah. It's probably the modern era for, for mine. For sure, no championship is easy to win. But you look at the people, you look at the quality of teams and drivers that Jimmy had to beat week in week out, and the margin between being good being good and at the front of the field in NASCAR and being at the back at the moment is as small as it's ever been. And he just kept racking up champ. They changed the point system. Uh, I was going to say, exactly right. He's done that in the year of the playoff system and yeah. all of the, the different things that they've thrown at it to try to keep it alive and keep it interesting. So, And much like Jamie Wincup's most recent title, Jimmy Johnson's last title was won on the back foot. He got sent to the back of the grid for that title-deciding race at Homebush. And... um. Sorry, Homestead. Sydney Olympic Park was not where the NASCAR no. were. And, um, yeah, came through and won anyway. Every lap in under a minute means every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Tick Attack. Supercars unforgettable. When you think locally, um, when I think of Bathurst, 
the blokes who've won it seven times stick in, in my mind. And um, for Bruce Hocking, Jason Wyatt, they both suggested Craig Lowndes as seven Bathurst wins. And Steve Collins mentioned Jimmy Richards' seven Bathurst wins. Of course, only Peter Brock has more. Uh, Lowndes is seven. I've put this in print before and I will say it here again. Lowndes is seven is better than Brock's nine. Bold. Fact. In my head. Greater period of competition. Mm-hmm. Um has done it across a pretty wide era of cars and teams uh, and platforms of cars as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's done it with different co-drivers. Has been not always the lion's share driver, but more often than not in, in those seven. I just think it's so more competitive now than when Brock's winning by six laps in 1979. I mean, you've still got to do the job. You can't yeah, take anything yeah. away from the fact of the result, uh, and, and I'm a believer of that more than anything. But... The fact that he's won races that have been decided by seconds, not laps or minutes, hmm. uh, in the most competitive era of Bathurst 1000 racing, when you know it's commonplace now for the win to be determined by zero point something, yes. rather than you know I remember in 1993 when Perkins won and Hansford beat Scaife and Richards by was I think it was 10 seconds. seconds. Yeah, we all went, wow, that was so close. <laughs> you know, it was fantastic. Now you look at it and go, that's a drubbing. Absolute smashing. Uh, I just think his seven is is phenomenal, um, and he's got room to to grab a couple more before he's done. Jimmy seven is you know it's amazing. It, it's probably a, a shame that three of them are as Robin, not Batman, in the Brock HDT era, um, and he was kind of Robin to Rydell in the Volvo as well, and to Scaife in two thousand two, but that doesn't diminish the fact that. You had to be in the right, be the bloke selected to be in the car, mm. be the bloke who did the job. You know, in O two, other blokes could were sticking in walls and doing silly stuff late in the race when he was in the car when the weather changed. But he was able to give it to Scaife, who was able to bring it on home. So if Jim doesn't do his bit right, Scaife can't do his bit right. For sure. So he, he did the job he needs to do, and he like it speaks volumes as to the longevity of his career that those wins occur as oh, well. Yeah, yeah. Like oh, first win in seventy yeah. eight. Last yeah. win in 02, 02 when he was 55 <laughs> years old and still a gun. Yeah, yeah. It's um, and, and then the next year he qualified like third. <laughs> Unfortunately, everyone forgets because Murphy banged that lap yeah. God lap together and kind of blew everybody else's achievements that day. Qualified third, fastest HRT car ahead of Mark Scaife. Ahead of Scaife, yeah, who was the reigning supercars champion three yeah. times in a row at that point. So, uh, yeah, you know, they're very special guys in, in Bathurst 1000 history. So their their power of seven is pretty strong mm. in terms of where they sit in the grand scheme of things. But Lowndes has some room to maybe sneak another one or two on. Interesting question on how long he goes for mm. as an enduro driver in the next couple of years. But if he goes on, he's going to go on at triple eight. Oh, of course. I wonder if he – and that's probably raises an interesting topic. I just had in my head then, does Craig Lowndes get to the Elio Castro Neves level where – for example, come with me on this. Yeah. So I Elio, think I see where we're going. Long-time Penske driver, was there from, what, 2000, thereabouts. Yeah, 2000. Yeah. Um, wins three Indy 500s, which gets you so much credit with the captain and his team. Uh, in the way as Lowndes has won, what, six of his seven Bathurst with Triple Eight. He's the franchise guy of Triple Eight going all the way through. He's, you know... No one else. Roland Day would have run a third car for anybody other than Craig Lowndes, which yeah. he did, which he always said he wouldn't do run mm. three, but he did, but only for Lowndes. So does it come to a point in time where Craig's 
going to get to a period where he's not doing as much racing. They're looking to the future that, you know, if they have whoever replaces Wink Up, they've got Tanner in the mix, Wink Up decides to drive. Oh, it's a bit of a juggle there. Someone's going to end up out. Someone's going to lose their pace as an Mm. enduro driver year on year. If if you're Lowndes, do you go, well, if I'm not going to be in a triple eight car, then I'm done. Mm. I don't have the motivation. Or do you do the Castro Neves, whereas, you know, Penske ran him for another, what, year or two in the Indy 500 as a one-off mm. once he was in their sports car program. If you're Triple Eight, do you go, we want Craig Lance to stay in our race team and in our world. He's a massive part of Australian motorsport. Mm. So whether you make him um, your GT driver to drive with Prince Jeffrey or you and you wheel him out in a wild cut here or there or you keep him in your world or if you're Craig, do you end up going, I might be somehow squeezed out here because the era's just changed and it's time. He might not want to go anywhere else, but I'm sure there's a bunch of other teams that would happily, as Castro Neves has with Mike Shank, Mm. uh, pick up a program with another team somewhere that is of the right level that he deems being able to go on with. I think it's a really interesting thing that's going to happen somewhere down the track and somewhere soon on what unfolds. For sure. If you're another team you and you've got Craig Lowndes who's still fast and has that massive wealth of experience, you would be crazy not to want to grab him. But the thing is, would he want to be grabbed? Well, yes, that is the other point. Mm, mm. So it's, it's an interesting one, but I still think, you know, even if he's got one or two more years at... Triple Eight, he's he's going to be in a car that's competitive and capable of winning, no matter who he's driving with or how it all works out. But yeah, yeah, does Wink Up drive the Enduros? If he drives the Enduros, I know I can't remember off the top of my head. Lowndes' deal is it up at the end of this year, next year? That's an extraordinarily good question. The other thing to factor in is with all of Jamie's extra commitments as a team principal. I think he's going to struggle with that. Because it, well, it won't just be a question of whether he drives in the Enduro slash Enduros, whatever the 2022 season looks like in terms of co-driver He's got to drive something else. Yeah, that's the thing. Like ha- having a run in test on test days when you're therefore taking time away from your primary driver, it's probably not something going to be something he wants to do. And then, like you say, you've got to stay match fit. You've got to go out doing something. And will he have time? Will he have the brain space to actually mm. devote mm. time to that to those activities? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, a quick look up online while you were, were speaking. There was in 2019, uh, it was confirmed that Lowndes would remain a Triple Eight co-driver until at least the end of 2021, having extended his deal. So there you go. Um, until at least the end. Mm. So at least this year. So. You read into that what you will. But anyway, they're going to find themselves with a, an interesting scenario. But can Craig Lands become an eight-time Bathurst winner? Oh, can he get to nine? It's not impossible. Time's probably just against him. But he's in the right place to make the most of that time. That's true. That's true. Uh, before he won in 2018, if you'd say, I wouldn't, wouldn't have said he was going to get to, to nine. On Saturday afternoon, it didn't look like he was going to get to seven. It didn't look like he was going to get to the end of the race, let alone anything else. Uh, And then he and Richo go out and deliver this sublime performance and absolutely nail it to get that seventh win. So, yeah. The other thing, too, um, Sandown, I regret to continue to remind myself, is no longer an endurance event. Mm. Brock, seven in a row, um, suggested by Dennis Seidel. He won the enduro at Sandown seven times in a row from 75 to 81. 
every time I see that cool. stat, that is mind blowing. Like you know, we all know what he did at Mount Panorama, but seven years in a row winning the Sandown Enduro is ridiculous. Nuts. It's nuts. It was like it was his play toy. Like, yeah. oh yeah, it's my race. You can all turn up and have a dip, but eh. That was his glory period. So he won in the Gaon Hindoff L34 in 75, mm-hmm. uh, which was the debut of the 05 yep. number as well. Yep. In 76 in the Team Brock L34, in 77 in the Patterson A9X, 78 and 79 the Dealer Team A9X, uh, 80 and 81 in the HTT Commodore, and then in 82 it busted a, something in the rear end early in the race. So yeah. the concept of winning a, another one, and he won in 73. So he won 73, Moffat yes. won 74, yeah. and then Brock. So between them, they won it for a decade, those yeah. two guys. It was a, you know, it's hard to- Of course, Moffat to... won in 82. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, not on the day, but he got that, <laughs> he got got that one later yeah. on. Uh, and then Moffat won in 83 and Brock and Perkins won 84. Yeah. So you you actually stretch it back from 73 with Brock winning to 84 with Brock and Perkins, and it's Brock and Moffat who win for a decade. Now, mm. you look at the list of supercar race winners at certain tracks in our current world, and you'll see a certain name pop up or two names pop up, you know, a bit in the recent past. But there's, there's multiple <laughs> like, races, yeah. you know, there's two or three races. Yeah. So it's not as impressive just to, to do it year in. Okay, competition levels. They differ, but yeah, when I think of Sandown seven, it's Brock seven in a row between seventy five and eighty one. Yeah. Now, now with bike racing, will mm-hmm. there's only one dude that's number seven? Oh, of course, Barry, it's Barry Sheen for sure. Barry Sheen, Jeff Schmidt, Lee Harper, Jeff Hancock, um, a Handock, I should say, and probably a litany of other people <laughs> suggested Baz, of course, larger than life, um, amazing motorcycle rider. But this, the number seven was. With him on his bikes was with him when he went truck racing, when he went uh, Toyota Super Touring Car Racing. Yes. Uh, he, he's the standout seven for sure. And it's remarkable. Like, he he played such a um, significant role in Australian motorsport from a broadcast sense. We were, we were very lucky that at the end of that 85 season, like, he decided, well, Australia's pretty good. So, he came out here and was the voice of motorcycle racing for so long, took took a central role in the touring car racing broadcast as well. Yeah, I think that the timing of all that was really good, particularly the Channel mm. 9 Wide World of Sports era where, yeah. you know, satellite TV was beaming, you know, 500cc motorcycle races, Formula 1 races, albeit they were delayed there for a time. Mm. Um, <laughs> of course, Channel 9 jumped into Indy cars and all that sort of stuff, but Barry was a big part of the, the bike. So the, the, the rise of Wayne Gardner yes. through that period was huge where he won a world championship, the Phillip Island races, and Barry was a huge part of all of that. And, of course, then that the bikes ended up on 10, so he was there as well, and then that rolled into uh, the V8 supercar coverage and, and the, the friendships and the um, connections the that he developed. And the shell ads with Barry, <laughs> uh, with Dick. Uh, I. Dick's told us plenty of times about the ads that never made it to air. <laughs> there are other ads that they must be stuck somewhere. in a file somewhere at an advertising agency who doesn't know that they have them. Or, mm. But he said, we filmed a bunch of other ads, he and Barry, uh, the, the infamous Shell ads. I still, you know, I still, if I'm at a servo and my wife's sitting in the car, <laughs> you know, we'll tap on the window and ask her if she wants anything else inside when I go in and, you know, a chocolate bar. Yeah. What about paper? What about a sock? <laughs> um, yeah. What else brings to mind in bike land for you? There's probably a, an Australian connection there too. Yeah, the, the logical one's my former colleague at Fox Sports, Christopher Mullen. Yeah. Ran number seven in, in honour of Barry and the role that Barry played in helping him out through his career. And that's the other thing. Barry helped quite a lot of riders 
who he felt were talented. Mick Doohan's another one. He made contacts with him with the with the factories to help him. But Chris, yeah, Chris owed a like a solid chunk of his start in Europe to Barry Sheen and his help. Uh, actually, uh, Dan Martin was the one who suggested to us on our socials about mm. about Chris. Um, Funny thing is, though, once Chris got to MotoGP, he really didn't get a chance to use the seven, number seven on its own very much. Did he have the seven on when he won at Le Mans in the wet? He did not. He had number 71. Ah, because yeah. he wasn't allowed to run seven? or So, it had, by that point, MotoGP had moved into an era where riders were were tying themselves to numbers. Like, you think of Kevin Schwantz with 34. 34. He was sort yep. of the pioneer with yep. that. I guess Barry was the pioneer with seven, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. But then Schwantz with 34. Rossi with 46. Ro- exactly. And, then and from- everyone's got on it. Exactly. Yeah. So, by that po- by the time Vermeulen turned up, he actually- his first number was, I think, actually 17 because he was deputising for another great Aussie rider, Troy Bayliss, uh-huh. um, and seven was taken by Carlos Checker. So, Checker left to World Superbikes, but then Randy Depunier took number seven. So, Vermeulen couldn't have it again. Oh, he missed out. He missed out. I think he did, by by the end of his MotoGP career, had finally secured the number seven. But, uh, yeah, on that um, great day at Le Mans in 07, number 71 was the bike that um, crossed the line well, first. he was number seven and finished P1, so it sort of made sense. <laughs> it all adds The up. way it all connected it through all together. That worked. And is my memory right? In Superbike Lampierre, Francesco Killy was seven Killy, for a yes. while on the Ducatis. Indeed, yeah. yeah my memory's not that bad. Sedan. I mean, yeah. I'm not, I don't pertain to being, a, a, you know, a, a two-wheeled expert, but uh, the odd little thing sticks in the memory bank from back in the day that yeah. makes me slightly dangerous with that sort of stuff. So <laughs> so a couple of other like little two-wheel things. Mm-hmm. Eddie Lawson, the first win for Kajiva. Ah, yes. Number seven, yeah, which he yeah. says was just like fortunate that the tyre choice that they made because it was a wet, dry race. Which race was that? Hungarian Grand Prix. What year? 92. 92? One of two times, I think, that um, MotoGP or 500cc World Championship as it was back then raced at the Hungara Ring. <sighs> was this in the era that John Kosinski was riding those? Correct. Uh, he wasn't on the Kajiva. He was, that was his last year alongside Wayne Rainey on the factory Marlboro Yamaha. Uh-huh. And and Hungary, I think, was the first race after everyone had hurt themselves at the Dutch TT. <laughs> so Mick wasn't on the grid. Gardner wasn't on the grid. Uh, how Schwantz was on the grid with his broken wrist was just some... Nuts, because they're nuts. Miracle. That's why well, yes, that riders why, yeah. line up on grids when they're damaged yes. and busted and yeah. and hurt. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, look, we haven't even got halfway through the Power <laughs> of Seven episode. And the reason why we're doing the Power of Seven episode uh, is because there's so many sevens in the world of motoration to talk about. But obviously, our friends at Petronas, they've got the Cintium Advanced Engine Oils because you know it from Formula One because that's where Mercedes-AMG Petronas have been the world champions for drivers and constructors titles since 2014, seven consecutive years. It's the longest unbroken record in F1 history, so it's most certainly the power of seven. Of course, you can benefit from the same advanced oils technology in your petrol or diesel engine car with the Petronas Sintium range. You can join the winning team. Harness that power of seven with Petronas Sintium. For stockist information, get your phone out, get ready, get some Petronas, 0288-33-4200. Right, seven, America. We've covered NASCAR in terms of champions, but we have people who've won seven times. There's a guy who won once, mm. but his one win was very powerful. Absolutely. And he had a Hooters car. 
you do have a Hooters car. And we were, ta- we were talking, of course, of Alan Kulwicki, and it was um, Daryl Krasinga who... Hey, Daryl's worked in the Supercars pit lane oh, really? for a long time. Yeah, yeah, heaps of teams. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, Daryl, for bringing up Alan Kulwicki because his... It's a great cha- story. It, it's an amazing story. Like, he was... I guess it's hard to it's hard to draw a comparison. I guess um Glenn Seaton, guys that built their own team, did everything themselves, did it their way. That's essentially what Alan Kulwicki did. He was an owner driver. He was also essentially the guy calling the shots on what he wanted for setup changes, what everything. Um, perfectionist, and the '92 season was sort of the culmination of years of work on short tracks from his native Milwaukee, rising up through the ranks to Winston Cup. Again, still doing things very much his own way, essentially as an independent. And he took on all the big teams and made off with a big prize. And there's a great, from memory, I saw it somewhere, there's a great documentary about the final race Mm. of the 92 uh, NASCAR Winston Cup series that he won the title, yeah. which was kind of like, um, kind of like Glenn Seaton winning the Supercast title, single car team, mm. owner driver, few similarities there, smaller staff operation than you know some of the yeah. big behemoths out there. Uh, it was Atlanta the final race Atlanta. in '92, and it was between he and Davey Allison in a. There was plenty of stuff going there, on. There were six drivers in mathematical contention at that final race, but the three key contenders were Kulwicki. Bill Elliott, who was racing for Junior Johnson. Awesome Bill from Dawsonville. Correct. Um, who, had dom- who had dominated large sections of that season, but the team was sort of stumbling as the, as the, um, as the final rounds unfolded. And, of course, as you mentioned, the third contender was Davey Allison, who'd had this wild roller coaster of a season. Like, he'd won the Daytona 500. He'd won a whole heap of races, but also hurt himself in some appalling crashes and had a lot of... Um, had a lot of private turmoil as well. His grandfather passed away. His brother passed away in a mm. racing crash during the season. It was just this incredible, like, you couldn't you couldn't make that his year up. And it got to the final round. I think he was leading heading into the final round and was taken out. In an, he was taken. He suffered damage in an accident on the first lap, battled his way back through, and then got taken out in the closing stages when he was in a position to potentially win. Mm. Um, which then left it open to Kulwicki and Elliot, who those two were the class of the field through the race. But Alan lost, I think he lost one of his lower gears. So he was all his clutch. Or there was an issue that meant he was very slow to come up to speed. So he had to play the numbers game because in NASCAR, if you lead the most laps, you gain five bonus mm. points. This championship in this year was decided by five points. So he ran the number, numbers in his head to work out how many laps he needed to stay out after Elliot pitted to make sure he led the most laps on the day. Mm. Ran yeah. those numbers, nailed it, won the title by five points by finishing second to Elliot. And, of course, the tragic element was that the following mm. year he was killed in a plane crash as the reigning yes. champion. Um, so that's the obvious, you know, from the highest of highs to the, to the absolute lowest of of lows. And uh, there was also, through Colwicky, a thing that stuck around in NASCAR racing and oval track racing when you win. Like, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you do burnouts when you mm. win. You know, Alex Zanardi did it. Yep. Um, obviously, Van Gisbergen's a superstar <laughs> at it. But with Kowicki, it became the go the opposite way victory lap. The Polish victory yeah. lap. Yeah. 
little nod to Alan's heritage. Mm. Um, yeah, very distinctive. And when he passed away um, in that 93 season, Rusty Wallace was a good, the NASCAR driver was a good friend of his and they'd sort of shared their rise to the top. And of course, Rusty won that first race at Bristol after, immediately after Alan had been killed and in honour did a Polish victory lap there. Um, and when Dale Earnhardt won the season for or what clinched the championship at Atlanta at the end of the year, both he and Rusty did Polish victory laps. And you do see them mm. again every so often now mm. when drivers are sort of giving a nod to Kulwiki, yeah. which is a very nice thing. Something I saw that was pretty cool too on socials, I think it was earlier this year that the and you might be able to fill the gaps in here, but there was a, a great photo, and I think it was is it Corey LaJoy, mm, NASCAR driver, yeah. young NASCAR driver. The team he drives for is based in the shop, yeah, Kulwiki's old shop. So he'd found a photo of Kulwiki standing out the front of the joint with sort of where the sign for the team was under some big oak trees or whatever they were out in the you know the front grass area, and he'd sort of replicated the stance, and there he was in the same spot, <laughs> and it looked pretty much the same you know, what is it, the best part of 30 years, 20 years, yeah. Uh, yeah, 30 years yeah. on. Jeez, I'm getting old and didn't even realise. Uh, the best part of 30 years on, so it was a really cool um, thing of uh, in the same spot where, you know, and kind of the same spirit of a, a small NASCAR team going up mm. against the the big dogs, as it were, of, of NASCAR racing. The, uh, uh, the car that he used to clinch that championship is still around, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, I thought you'd appreciate that. I love that. a bit of chassis yeah. sleuthing. Um, I can't remember the full story. If you have a quick, if you're listening, just have a quick Google. The story's there, but yeah. Um, there were a lot of neat little features in that car that were specific to that race. Um, in particular, in, because it was a Ford Thunderbird, they just, they got, and they were a Ford supported team, they got permission from Ford to just wipe off the T and the H. So it was the Underbird, <laughs> and I think he had. I think they replaced the T and the H with a little Mighty Mouse logo, <laughs> and I think from memory there was a pen, a lucky penny glued to either the seat or the dash. I can't remember which, but yeah, and a and a little glove box because Alan used to like carrying a comb, so that if he won the race, <laughs> he could comb his hair before um. Yeah. Well, there's guys like Fabian Coulthard who they don't need the comb. Their hair's perfect <laughs> when they take the helmet off. I still don't know how Fabian, he and Rick, Rick Kelly, Kelly. I don't know how they do it, but it's it's an art form. It's 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 seriously impressive. However, they do it, I'm not quite sure. Hmm. This is our Power of Seven episode. Will we're going through the the sevens of world motorsport that spring to mind. It's all uh, with thanks to Petra and Ascentium, who of course um, support the Mercedes AMG Formula One team, who have made. The Power of Seven, an art form in recent years with their dominance of Formula One and the amazing achievements of Lewis Hamilton, Valtteri Bottas, Nico Rosberg and everybody involved at that team. I want to focus on our next number seven and come back Mm -hmm. local to Australia. Bob Jane. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He had the seven on lots of stuff. Tirana's, Monaro, sports Mm. sedan, touring car, Tirana touring cars, the Chevy Monza that Peter Brock drove that yes. was Bob's car. Uh, so seven, And one of know, the first NASCARs as well. Yeah, one of those Australian-built yeah. kit cars had the seven on it as well, mm. um, which was part of a bit of a group of cars that were built when they first were getting the Thunderdome up and going. So, yeah, mm. Bob Jones brings to mind, and I reckon he had seven on that um, that old Jag back in the day as well. It was on the Correct. Camaro yeah, yeah. when he won the, the champion, Australian Touring Car Championship in 70, 72. It ran 76 there for a time. 
um, mm, yes, as well. But but seven was a very prominent Bob Jane number over the course of of the journey. But of his, do we know why he chose not? Because because uh, it's know. so distinctive uh, and so throughout his I career. Would, I would love if any of our listeners who are perhaps a little older than us might have a a reasoning on the why and how of why Bob Jane was was number seven. Because there's always a story with why. Yeah. Certain drivers have certain numbers or Because it's, never, with it's them. never by accident, like when they carry them Well, through. sometimes it's by accident, but then it's by design that you keep it. <laughs> yeah, true. So, or in um, the modern era, it's your karting number that you end up taking through and having a strong attachment to. Yeah. It, it, yeah. There's, there's, Maybe there's Bob was a big Sterling Moss fan who also ran the number seven a lot throughout the back end of his Formula One career. Maybe. I'd love to hear from our listeners if you got some extra insight or some extra info, uh, flick us a note on our website, v8sleuth.com.au. We've got a contact page on there where you can fill out your details and send us a note. Uh, of course, we can be contacted by the socials. Mm. Uh, uh, Facebook is usually the uh, the best way to go, but you yes. can direct message us on Insta or Twitter or Facebook or all yes. of those ways. If, if people want to get to you, they'll get to you. Mm. They know how to get to you. They know how to get to you. Uh, may I throw another tidbit at you? Go on. The only man to be involved in an incident with another driver where the other driver ended up with a negative point score in the V8 Supercars <laughs> Championship. Who am I talking about? Oh, it's got to be Rodney Ford, Correct. Hasn't it? Of course, he's uh, number seven at Gibson and Double O Motorsport. Uh, so he was seven when Crompton was there, but Crompton was 27. Yeah, yes. So, um, and the evolution of the number seven in touring car land. So when Gardner closed down his team at the end of 97. Mm. It went to Gibson's for 98. Ah, yes. Darren Hossack had it for the wins back cars. Mm. And then, of course, Steve Richards had it for the next few years. One Bath. One Bath with Murph in 99. Yes. Uh, that'll be mentioned a little bit later. Uh, Richard had it in the Kmart car in 00. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the Gibson thing changed and mm. it became Bob Forbes's funding, Ford, Lowndes, um, double Forbes, o. and yeah. then later morphed in double O. And, uh, and Rod- so the number seven stayed with that team, but obviously Craig was double O, Rodney was seven, and then uh, Neil was added as a third car full-time the next year or second car, and Rodney was the third car, however you wanted to hmm. phrase it. And so he got 27 rather than seven. So hence why Rodney Forbes, uh, Michael Derricks, by the way, was the one who suggested Rodney Forbes. But we had multiple people who suggested uh, Dave Patterson included, Dennis Kirkpatrick, Greg Street, Gary Blett, uh, Blurette, um, Craig Hilton, all mentioned one guy. He's a Bathurst winner, Australian touring car champion with this number seven, and kind of had the right connection to the network at the time because of the backing that he had. Am I giving this away, or are you, you picking up what I'm no, putting no, down? Yeah, I've got this. This is Bob Morris. It's Bob Morris. About. Yeah, he should course. be higher up our talking list, actually. Sure, I mean, synonymous with the number seven throughout the seventies and the start of the eighties. Hmm. Oh, it's Ron Hodgson, Tirana's XU1, L34, yep. A9X that he won the championship in 79 with that um, win over Brock in the last race, the Adelaide International Raceway. Uh, the Breville Channel 7 Falcon the next year, which was the Bill O'Brien car, then the mm. one that got written off at Bathurst, then the Seiko car. Yeah. Uh, so he ran a pretty much a decade mm. of number seven and used it to great effect. Oh, absolutely. Probably one of, like... Probably one of the more um, underrated stars of that era, if you're thinking back to now. Like, he's well, probably in not terms the of na- how he's talked about it? Yeah, in terms he's of how he's about? talked about it. Yeah, like, yeah right. he's probably not as high profile as he should be, is, oh, I guess, the general sentiment. Totally. I mean, when you are a Bathurst winner and an Australian touring car champion and he won a mm. bunch of other stuff, of course, in addition to all of that, yeah. yeah, it's 
pretty, you know, they're pretty special lists, and to be on both of them is mm. is pretty pretty phenomenal. And he was he was the star of the seventies. I mean, if if you looked at the pack of Holdens throughout that period, yeah, Brock Grice came on the scene. Harvey was around for a bit of it. Bond, of course, jumped teams there yeah. um, <laughs> late in the seventies to go to Moffat's. Morris was a constant, mm. and with the backing of Ron Hodgson for so many years, uh, ran great cars out of Sydney. Um, and I reckon they, those Breville ASL Channel oh. Seven K Nine yeah, yeah. Xs—they're two of the coolest looking. There were two of those cars. Mm. Um, they're two of the coolest looking cars. And having had a look up close at one of them at Phillip Island Historics a couple of years ago. Uh, with in fact Alan Moffat signing it because that was the one he drove. Yes, he drove yeah. it at Amaru in one of those Amps car rounds uh, as car twenty five, which was his uh, regular Falcon number back then. So, yeah, Bob Morris is a superstar, and because he's a, he doesn't have the media profile, or you know, he he stopped racing in the eighties. Um, well, that's it. You look at all his contemporaries, the names you just mentioned, they all raced on through the rest of the eighties and into the nineties in most cases. Whereas Bob still suffered lingering lingering um, effects from his crash at Bathurst in 1981, that effectively ended his ended his racing career. Yeah, remember, he, remember that he jumped back into the the John Sands car at Bathurst in '83 when he mm. wasn't actually didn't have the drive, but yeah. um, they they stuck him in with Rusty French and he put in the shootout, mm. uh, and then he drove a Mazda the next year. There, there was a, a mooted potential of him doing a super touring um, program with Rob yeah. Tweedy. In 97, oh, in a, wow. a two-litre Vauxhall in those ex-British Touring Car Championship cars that Rob had two of those. Mm. And I'm positive Bob tested one of those cars at Amaru and it was discussed that maybe there was a plan, but I presume there wasn't the budget for it or yeah. whether he didn't quite have the um, the need for then the want to do it. But, um, yeah, Bob Morris, massive star of Australian motorsport, mm. uh, particularly from the 70s into the, the early 80s. And you look at the guys he raced with and the guys he beat and the things that he did, it's pretty cool. So he's a... Definite um, number seven that probably should have been higher up our list of discussion, but we wanted to space it out and not do all the Australian stuff together and then all the <laughs> American. We wanted to, to spread it out. And of course, when I think of that Bathurst win in 76 in that number seven, uh, L34 Tirana with John Fitzpatrick limping around, <laughs> smoke pouring out of it. John Fitzpatrick, car, the car's still driving. Uh, yeah. Do it again. How does it go? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um that car's in the National Motor Racing Museum at Mount Panorama. It's been a, a permanent um, display there for, for some time. And, of course, our great mates at the museum, it's open six days a week up at Mount Panorama, closed on Tuesdays, so don't go on Tuesdays. But if you want to check the opening times and availabilities, head to their Facebook page, the National Motor Racing Museum or the Museum's Bathurst website because there's so much cool stuff to look at in there, not just the cars but trophies, memorabilia, panels, bikes, speedway, uh, there's all sorts of cool stuff, and they're regularly having themed exhibitions, and they've got some good plans for mm. later on in the year, just quietly. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number two, and oil, and find out. Another suggestion, this one's from Cotter O'Brien. Uh, Dave Bradfield was also on board with this. Bit of a more modern number seven, Todd Kelly. Ah, yes, TK. Mm. He, ran, he ran the number seven for quite a long time. 
Well, when he went to Larry Perkins, mm. of course, Seven was- um, Yeah, just to step back from when the Seven was with Double O Motorsport and how it made it to Larry to Larry Perkins. Well, it was a Jack Daniels- Exactly, yeah. Thing once Jack Daniels' sponsorship kicked in in 06, uh, Seven's an important number in Jack Daniels' land, so- mm. They grabbed it. Steve Richards drove it for a few, uh, what for? Well, a year. Yeah. And then he was off. Um, Shane, Shane Price, Price had it, and then of course Todd turned up in two thousand eight, and then Perkins closed. Kelly Racing was born with a lot of the elements of Perkins um, injected into it, and yeah, well, Todd used it from what then two thousand nine till when he stopped driving. What year was that? Two thousand and seventeen. Memory blank. Yeah. In seventeen. Yeah. Yeah, and of course Andre Heimgartner. Races on with it these days, so yeah, put I mean, back in the winners' circle too. Yeah, well, when you look at it now, there's three guys who had the seven for quite a long period, and it's Crompton, well, it's Morris, Crompton, Todd. Yeah, you know, for the best part of a decade. Yeah, each of them, pretty much, it's Bob's early seventies to early eighties. Mm. Cromley sort of picks it up late eighties into mid late nineties, and Todd picks it up sort of late two thousands and. Goes to mid late tens. Yeah. So they've actually um, put together a fair volume of work. I reckon Todd Kelly's unfair, not unfair, is not the word, but uh, hopefully history, uh, as time ticks by, people understand what he achieved as a driver. For sure. I mean, he's been out of the seat for a little while now, but um, when he drove with Scaife at the Holden Racing Team, because he didn't have the profile, people probably weren't talking about him as much or writing mm. about him as much, but he was a critical part of that. That program in that 04, 05, 06 period there, won a lot of races, was a regular front runner, and he was sort of a really dependable, reliable guy to punch a result. Like a, totally. I don't remember Todd really, you know, take out when you got involved in innocent crashes or mid-pack crashes, mm. but he wasn't really a crasher. No. Uh, just one of those guys who you could depend upon for a result. Absolutely. First drive, or he took the first win for the VE Commodore as well. Yeah, uh, Adelaide. Yeah. Um Eclipse of 500, 2007. But importantly, from the point of view of number seven, mm -hmm. he took the last win for Perkins Engineering. Yes. Simmons Plains down in Tassie, 2008. Uh, a wet, damp first race there. It was a cold, um, not fun afternoon <laughs> of weather in Tassie. I was there. I remember it vividly. I think he started 10th or something like that. And, of course, the weather hit. He did the best job made it through, picked up the win, and then carried it on in the dry the next day because it was the progressive grid. Mm. And he was the guy to take it up to Lowndes and Wink Up for that weekend. So, um, And, of course, it was a wind-down of Perkins Engineering. That's the last time a Perkins Engineering team car uh, won the race because, of course, it morphed into Kelly Racing for the following year. So it's a, a thing that we'll look at closely in our Perkins History Book of the history of the cars that we're working on at the moment. Uh, Pre-order it now. Don't miss out, guys bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. We've just confirmed recently uh, that we're going to only print 2,500 copies and more than half of those copies are already allocated to pre-order mm. customers. So uh, don't miss out. We say it every time with these books, but we absolutely mean it because that's what's happened with our DJR book, our HRT book, our Holden at Bathurst book, our Ford at Bathurst book. We do runs so as they do sell out, so as they are sought-after collectibles and really part of people's memorabilia collections as well as part of their bookshelf book collections mm. as well. So um, don't delay. Pre-order now. Yes. Don't miss out and avoid <laughs> disappointment. This Very good. Yeah. yeah. Nice. I should do that full time. That'd be good. <laughs> uh, another suggestion, Robbie McGregor. We kind of touched on it before. Murph and Richo's Bathurst 1999 win, mm. the wins Commodore. 
I feel like that's a bit of a forgotten Bathurst win. I'd agree it's with that. It's not put up there in lights with, you know, the, the scaife wins of the early noughties or the Larry wins of the 90s. It's kind of a bit... Well, when it, you think of Gibson well, Motorsport why? Bathurst wins, it's a very good question. Maybe because it was the first championship counting Bathurst. Maybe it was because of the era. It's hard. Hmm. I'm really not sure because it was it was a cracker of a race. It was a day-long battle between that car and the 18 DJR Falcon. HRT cars were in H- the mix. They were. But they also had championship considerations yep. that they had to think about. Yep. Uh, Dick Johnson's last race and he and Stevie J brought it home in fourth, fourth. place. Yep. But, yeah. It's, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because- the great thing is with both of those guys, there's plenty of Bathurst wins to choose from, so that's always <laughs> yes. nice. But with Murph, what's the Bathurst? You know, I think it's the Kmart era that overshadows his mm, other Bathurst wins. Point. He was the co-driver to Lowndes the first time. Probably in 99 too, they were very – Murph and Richo were kind of very even contributors to that because mm. you could pair full-timers together. So it wasn't like Bannerhead guy, oh, yeah, and that other guy co-driver. Yeah. They were both at the same tier as one another in terms of – Probably their their abilities and their standing and their pecking order and their box officeness and all that sort mm. of stuff. So it's a strange one. Maybe over the fullness of time, I think what would help is if that car returned one day. Ah, I see. But it's been unseen for a very long time. It's had a bit of an interesting modified life. With um, it spent some time. It was actually one of the Team Dynamic first cars. They chopped oh, the front it off it too. and converted yeah. it into a VY um, TD Triple O. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and it raced with them, and it's ended up. Last time I think I saw it race was probably Simon Wills in Adelaide, two thousand seven, in the DVS. Hmm. Um, it's owned by a, a Melbourne private collector. Last that I heard, and I'm not sure where it's at in terms of it's is it being restowed or what's going on. But I think if that car rolled out in wins, you know, nineteen ninety nine Bathurst livery, sure, that might help reinvoke the memories of that race and how special that was to. Uh, those guys. Uh, Adrian Ratskin, who's been around the Supercars pit lane for a very long time, Adrian, he suggests Grant Denyer. Oh, yeah, that's a good shout. And it makes sense. Yeah, yeah, for very similar reasons to um, Neil Crompton's usage of number seven. Of course, Grant Denyer, the time that he was probably most high profile in his racing endeavours, was with the Seven Network. Mm, mm. Sunrise Weatherman, yeah. V8 Utes, um did a Subaru production car at 12 at the Bathurst, Bathurst, I think, with with Cromley, actually. He was in Mm. that car. They were number seven. Mm. Uh, So, yeah, Grant Denny is definitely in the mix of the power of seven. There's no doubt about that. He's he's on the list. Um, I think Grant Moore, he's driven so many things now. And, of course, we spoke to him on the pod a couple – Last year. Last year. It was last year. If you haven't heard, it's quite an entertaining chat. (laughs) Go through our back catalogue of episodes and have a listen to our Grant Denny chat it was really great to sit down with him and we went through oh, pretty much everything in in his racing career um but yeah it's the ute sort of i mean the vip car was the standout for me when he mm. first started and then obviously the seven number came a little bit later and when he couldn't have seven he had 77 mm. in the deep remember the ford rising stars car he was 77 in that um but i think quite often he found himself in drives in other people's cars that already had numbers kind of allocated so yeah. you know 81 yes. remember that in the djr <laughs> yeah. falcon in, in the dvs um because in those days the number pool of supercars was one number pool spread across the main championship 
and the development series, mm. whereas now it's separate. So you can yeah. have a number five or a number seven in, in both. both the main game and Super 2, whereas back in those days, that's why there were so many numbers in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the 90s because it was all drawn from one pool and they didn't want to have uh, a mix-up all the way through. Um, I've got to say, too, a new partner of ours on the podcast that we want to tell you about is The Motorsport Trader. So go to their website, themotorsporttrader.com. They're a home of memorabilia. So they're keeping motorsport memories alive, which is what we like to do on the V8 Sleuth podcast. But if you're after like memorabilia collectibles, stuff like panels from race cars or wheels, there's all sorts of cool stuff there from supercars and touring cars, GT cars. Mm. Uh, visit the website, themotorsporttrader.com, and Luke and his team will look after you. There's some cool stuff on there that I might admit to thinking, I wonder where we could fit that door here in the <laughs> office, but I don't reckon we've got any room. So I think yeah. it's best that our listeners maybe have a look at the website and see what they might find for themselves. But uh, I tell you what, Something I did see on there recently mm. was a Jeff Brabham IMSA sports car Nissan door. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I don't know how it got there. I, I would have to ask the boys at the Motorsport Trader uh, to to know how the hell they ended up getting that. But <laughs> They've turned up some wild stuff. Like, there's some cool stuff on there. You yeah, remember really cool um, stuff. the crash that wrote off DJR EV5, the 94 Phillip Balance Island. Phillip Island 96? They found the bonnet. Oh wow! Yeah, last I think last year or yeah, some point in the last eighteen months they yeah. That is most definitely fitting with their motto of keeping motorsport memories alive. It's they have indeed done that. Uh, let's move on with our Power of Seven episode. Uh, Christian Schmidt, uh, known Christian for a long time around motor racing pit lanes, has worked as an official for many many years. Of course, part of that group of volunteers who do an amazing job to keep our sport rolling. Mm. Um, cool suggestion from him, and this is sort of a little segue from the Jeff Brad Mimsa car that I mentioned. Sports car Yes. The Yost Porsche that won Le Mans yes. in 84 and 85. The new man, yellow and black, 956 Porsche. It's yeah. A good spot. Oh, absolutely. Like, so, like, winning a, winning one Le Mans 24 hours is difficult enough, but to win two back-to-back, same team, same, same chassis. Car. Same yeah, car. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the year 84 that Brock went, Perkins yeah. in their car, Grice was there. Uh, but this was... Klaus Ludwig, who raced at Bathurst in the Texaco Sierras, mm. uh, he won with Henri Pescarolo, who won Le Mans five million times. Yeah. Five times? Six times? It was, it was times. a lot. Yeah, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And then the following year, they had a third driver, mm. who is the infamous John Winter. Yes. Now, that was not his real name. It was <laughs> no. a pseudonym he raced under. His name was Louis Krages, I think is mm. the way he pronounced it. Um, he's passed away now. Um, but he took a pseudonym because he didn't want his family knowing he was racing. So that's why he was John Winter. So then my question is, if you were going racing because um, the lovely Mrs. Dale said, no, I don't want you racing, or your family didn't want you racing, and you wanted to race, what would be your pseudonym? <laughs> um, having used a few different pseudonyms over the year, um, over the years for writing purposes. <laughs> um, <laughs> Well, um, don't say any of those be any of them. because, because <laughs> yeah. you'll 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 reveal too much. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. I really don't know. We'll um, I don't think the this. name would be the issue with trying to trying to hide that. Mm. Um, the bank balance statement sheet of the why have we just bought a race car? The, compli- the, the absences on weekends would also be yeah, difficult. I've to, got to work again. Uh, Hang on a minute. What? Uh, <laughs> how about you? Uh, I must admit, I thought I'd throw it at you, and I. Th- thought that would buy me some time to come up with one and I haven't come up with one. So let, let's 
aim before we do our next one yeah. together that we come up with what our well, suitable. Okay. Maybe, maybe a- it's a good topic for um, our listeners to maybe send in some suggestions of what maybe they have used pseudonyms before. For various licensing purposes or various things that we <laughs> we can't we, can we cannot protect you promise you, you amnesty. No, no, we can protect you where we can. But uh, I'm sure, and I know this happened back in the day where doing speedway when you were a cams license holder wasn't was frowned upon. <laughs> mm. There were some funny names used, yeah, about yes. people who were real people uh, from circuit racing who did speedway. Uh, when they yeah. technically at the time weren't allowed to be so. Commenta- there, there have been some good commentators with um with nom de plumes over the years as well. Uh, Mark Austin. Oh, that's a great story. <laughs> we should quickly tell the Mark Austin story, shouldn't we? Yeah. So Mark Osler. So this works for Power of Seven because of course he was on the Seven Network. Mm. So as a of course Marco, so many of our listeners will know from his time on Channel Seven, the foundation editor of Australian Muscle Car Magazine. Um, Worked for Peter Jansen for a time. Uh, he's been around the sport for, for so many years. But when he's when he got his commentary break, and effectively because Neil Crompton was off racing, so uh, Mike Raymond and Channel Seven were looking for some more young talent. Uh, Mark got an opportunity to commentate at an Amps Car Round in Sydney, and we did tell this story on the Shannon's Legends of Motorsport series. But if you haven't heard it, it's it's a cracker. If you ever see the vision of that race, and I think there's a Formula Ford support race or or mm. something that pops up, and it might be on YouTube somewhere, that Mark Austin is the commentator's name. It's <laughs> on the graphic on the screen. He's introduced as that. It's clearly Mark Osler. Yeah. <laughs> but the reason he was, he was working as a stagehand at Channel 9 at the time <laughs> and being a very careful operator as Marco is, mm. uh, didn't want to do the wrong thing and didn't want to be revealed as turning up working on Channel 7 on a weekend and then working at Channel 9 during the week. So he um, he asked if he could just change his surname. So it was for on-air <laughs> purposes for that particular weekend, he was uh, in the clear. And I think it's the only time he ever actually ran with it, but uh, that is how he started. So That's so funny. <laughs> I wonder how he came up with Austin. Uh, must ask him. Yeah. Must ask him one day. But, yeah, um, yeah cool one. Cool story, though. <laughs> cool story. Just to um, circle back to our um, Yurst Porsche Chad, it was um in '85. It was Paolo Barilla that was. Oh with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who, yeah. if you recognise the surname Barilla, he went pasta. on to yeah, pastor. He's part of the um Barilla. So it was he family. and Ludwig and he Winter and John Winter. Yeah. Yes, and yeah. to continue on the Yurst Porsche theme, that's not the only time they've won back to back Le Mans with the same chassis carrying the number seven in the nineties. They the, did it the again in the nineties. Yeah, which Tom Christensen got his start in. Correct. Did he win seven Le Mans? He won a lot. Eight. Seven? Have we left him off our list? Surely not. Surely not. Surely not. Surely we have not forgot probably one of the greatest drivers in the history of sports car racing. No, it's definitely more than seven. Yeah, it is nine. He got, to, he got to nine. He got to nine. Jeez. But for one year at least, for for one period at least, he was a seven-time yeah. Lamar winner. <laughs> Very good. Well yeah. played. I'll give you that one. Yes. I'll give you that one. Uh, a couple more to quickly um, mention. Scott Bentley mentioned James Stewart, Bubba Stewart, mm-hmm. motocross rider, number seven in, in the United States. Mark Elborn, I love this one. Rodney Crick, super truck oh, driver, the late great super truck driver, uh, whose son Cameron races these days in a variety of categories. Mm. Uh, number seven. Yeah. The Shell, uh, was it Rimmuller X? Rimmuller X. Rimmuller, yeah, yeah. Big Bertha. Rimulac, the older protects, yeah. Blair and thing. 
Track racing in the 90s, particularly at Oran Park, was very Sydney-focused, mm. but it was bloody huge. Oh, yeah. Cricky, Inky Tullock in the cat yeah. truck. Yeah, there was all sorts of familiar names that were, were going around, and it was and it was and it drew crowds. Yes. Like, they seriously drew crowds at Oran Park. Like, it was a... It was a big time thing, and of course, uh, Rodney Crick ended up in doing a bit of touring car racing later on. He did Bathurst mm. a couple of times uh, with Neil Shembury and with uh, Trucky Parsons mm. uh, as well. So, and Mike Imry uh, later oh, yes. on in the in the late nineties. So, yeah, a couple more number sevens from two wheels and and four well four wheels, some very big wheels, very um, very big four wheels. Truck racing. Uh, James Jake Watson suggested one that I just had not forgot, not really. Thought of it didn't come into my brain immediately. Mm. Gimme. <laughs> oh yeah, Formula One's current resident number seven. How did we forget Kimmy? How did we leave him to last? <laughs> well, you don't really associate. Well, none of his successes have really come with a number seven. It's just been a relatively recent thing. Mm. Um, of course, because Formula One followed the trend that a lot of other categories around the world of letting drivers adopt their own number in I think 2014. Mm. Yeah. It was. Um, <laughs> and from what James said, well, neither of us knew knew this. And if or, I did know yeah, it, I'd forgotten it. Yeah, same. Um, so he told he says when the F one drivers got to pick their new numbers for the twenty fourteen season, Raikkonen wanted number six because he drove with a number six when he won the F one world title for Ferrari in two thousand seven. However, Nico Rosberg wanted the number six because, well, it was his father Keki's number when he won the world title in nineteen eighty two. Makes sense. Um. Raikkonen gave Rosberg the number six, and he took seven because, in his words, and this is possibly one of the most Kimmy things ever, <laughs> in his words, he had used number seven the previous year, so why change? And because F1 drivers now keep their numbers every year, it's meant that all subsequent drivers who wanted to use the number seven, Valtteri Bottas and Charles Leclerc in particular, couldn't use it. <laughs> but when you think, like, because... In the era prior to that, number seven, of course, moved from team to team, um, depending on their finishing position in the Constructors' Championship. So, a lot of other different drivers have raced with number seven Formula One over the years. Eddie Irvine comes to mind with the um, with the Jaguars. Oh, the Jags. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Um, it's spent time at McLaren. Michael Andretti raced with number seven in his- um, Short career in, in his, Formula One. Well, it was most of a season. He got a podium, which is more than a lot of other people can say. Monza? Monza, yeah, his yeah. final race, yeah, um, which the, after which it became Mika Hakkinen's number. And then the- What year was it? Was it the follow, following year? Mika Hakkinen had it, but he missed a race and Philippe Alio used it. Uh, yes, yeah. Oh, no, yeah. spot on. Get yeah, that. Yeah. Yes, good one. That was a good one, yeah. Um, nice. And then, don't know why, but they swapped numbers and Hakkinen ended up with eight when Coulthard, David Coulthard arrived. So, what was what was Mansell? Mansell was... I mean, he was too fat because like, they had to build another <laughs> car for him in 95. Maybe that's when the swap occurred because I'm, my memory says Mansell was seven. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. And of course, you won back a well, few years. Can't remember now. Yeah, you yeah. won back a few years prior to that, and number seven was with the Brabham team because they had seven and eight, which meant when David Brabham he was seven. David Brabham yeah, was number seven. Good spot. Good spot. Yeah, nice. Um, there's so many sevens that we could go through all day here. But, we could. Um, I think we've covered off the big ticket ones, and and it's mainly because of our our followers and our our, our listeners and and those who follow us on socials when we put the call out to this. So, thanks everyone for giving us your 
sevens, your special sevens of motorsport. It's been a chance for us to explore the power of seven with thanks to our friends at Petronas Sintium Advanced Engine Oils. Come up with a cool list there. I think we got a bit of everything in. Oh, can, America, I slot one, can I slot one last one in? Righto. Why not? All right. It is going back to being a bit NASCAR related. One of the um, unheralded unheralded NASCAR movies of the era. Oh, God. Where's this going? Stroke a race. Burt Reynolds NASCAR movie. <laughs> the Clyde Torkel Chicken Pit Special. Car number seven for Thunderbird. If what? you've never heard what? of this yeah. movie, 1982-83. Yeah. Um, Burt Reynolds is the driver, the um, titular stroke a race. Um, <laughs> Jim Neighbors is his chief mechanic, Lugs Harvey. I.e. the man who sang Back Home in Indiana every year. Back in Home Again in Indiana, yes. The very same, Goma <laughs> Park. Um, Ned Beatty is his team owner, um, Clyde Torkel of Clyde Torkel's Chicken Pit Special. Chicken Pit being a um, an equivalent to KFC. <laughs> I'm, I'm it's, a, it's a I weird, did not see this going movie. down this pathway. Um, it was... <laughs> It features cameos from a lot of NASCAR stars of the period. Dale Earnhardt's in it, Carl Petty's in it, uh, Ricky Rudd, Neil Bonnet. Um, it's probably on a streaming service somewhere now. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> and it'd have to be somewhere. Yeah. Everyone's hoovering up everything that's content at the moment, so it's surely true. that's going to get yeah. dragged in. For our listeners, what's it called again? Stroker Ace. Check it out. Charlie Daniels Band. You know, the, um, Devil went, the band that did Devil Went Down to Georgia? No. Oh, well- for our listeners you're a, who do you're know a that resident name. movie and music expert in for, this office. For our listeners who do know that band, they also did the theme song to the to that movie. So it was full Southern. This, this is like motor racing IMDB going on right here to finish <laughs> off our Power of Seven episode. Maybe we might have to do a racing movies. Oh, I like episode. that. Yeah, I feel that'll like get that. you sparked up and and all lit up. We'll we'll just put that on the backburner we'll put that in the memory bank for a bit later on uh, another thing for our listeners too we really appreciate your amazing support we are um absolutely having a great year in terms of the downloads our listeners but we'd love to expand it so tell all your friends about our podcast and what we do and what we talk about subscribe to it so you always get the notifications on your phone when a new episode goes up you can rate and review us as well we're happy to cop some five star I'm not so good with three or four stars. I'm all about the five stars. But Look, Lee, if you could give us a seven star, that would be even better. I don't know you'd how. You'd off but, the scale yeah. to do that, but um, I'll take it if you can give it. Uh, we love your feedback. We love your suggestions. So whether you're contacting us via our, our social pages or via the form on the website, get in touch with us. We really appreciate the podcast. It's been a thing that we've loved doing for pretty much the last two years now, Will. We've, and we had a birthday. We had an anniversary Got to be an excuse for some cake or a party or some balloons we, or something. We just surpassed our two-year anniversary on May 14th. Oh, we missed doing something about but it. But we are coming up to a rather large milestone, which um, we might make a bit of a noise about when that happens. All right, we'll make a noise about it when it happens. It hasn't happened yet. That was our Power of 7 episode. Thanks, everyone, for your contributions and your suggestions. Don't forget Repco Supercars Weekly every Tuesday as we take a look at the Repco Supercars Championship with the news notes and quotes and our regular pod every Wednesday. Some uh, great guests to come up soon, some great focus topic uh, episodes as well. In the meantime, thanks again for listening to another episode of the V8 Sleuth Podcast powered by Repco. We'll chat to you next week. Every lap in under a minute. Every move made to matter. Every decision impacting the outcome of the race. Supercars in Perth. 
Every second matters. Bosch Power Tools Perth Super Sprint, May 17 to 19. Book now at Ticketek. Supercars. Unforgettable. Do you know how to find the right oil for your car? Now you can find out quickly and easily online, thanks to Castrol's Rego to Oil tool. Simply type in your Rego, select your state, and within seconds you'll know the best Castrol products to unlock the edge of performance in your car. So what's your car best suited to? Just search Rego, the number 2, and oil, and find out.